0: as we discussed last week in our introduction, we are studying in in this time period really what the entire Bible has been talking about up to this point. If you go back, you go back to the very beginning, we've been talking about this point in time. It it has been promised to the people uh, that there was going to be one who was going to come who was going to be their savior. This anointed one, this Messiah, this one that was going to reign on the throne of David for all of eternity. This one who was going to establish a kingdom. We looked at the book of Daniel and it talked about in the days of those kings. In the days of, uh, the days of these kings, there was going to be a kingdom that was going to be established. And this kingdom was going to have no end to it. And it was going to rule over all the other kingdoms. This is the time period that we were talking about. When we got into the gospels, we started with the book of John. And what is the emphasis of the Book of John? Jesus is the Son of God. He is deity. He is God. And He is not new to the scene, is He? We talked about how He is from from the very beginning. That was the emphasis of John. Uh, And then as we transition into Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that really discuss the childhood of Christ. Isn't that kind of fascinating? That you have two of the Gospels but don't even talk about the first 30 or so years of his life. You know, If you're ever looking for an evidence of inspiration, that's evidence to me of inspiration. Because if a man was going to sit down and just write a biography, who would write a biography and just pick up with the ministry of Christ? But we have these books that are given to us. And we used this phrase last week, uh, collaboration without conflict. So these gospel writers are able to weave together Complementary stories that collaborate without conflicting with one another. And we'll even see that in our study today, where we study Luke, but there's some things that Luke doesn't mention, but then Matthew brings to us. Again, all weaving together to give us more information. Uh, if you recall our study last week when we got to Luke chapter 1, uh, we talked about how uh, the angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, announced to Zacharias that Zacharias and Elizabeth were going to have a son. Were they young or were they old? They were old. They were past the age of normal childbearing. But he announced that they were going to have a son. Zacharias didn't believe. He doubted. And so he was made mute. Um, But then the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. A similar announcement to Mary. That Mary is going to have. What about now? Is that better? Okay. Mary is going to be with child. And this is going to be a miraculous birth. She's going to be with child uh, by the Holy Spirit. And as confirmation of this, the angel Gabriel mentions to her, her, her relative Elizabeth. And that's the confirmation to her that if your relative who is unable to have a child is able to have a child by the power of God, you too are going to be able to have this child. And it's not just any child, but you are going to have a child who is special. So then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And that's where we left off last week in Luke chapter 1, uh, there in verses 39 and following. And we, I think we mentioned this, that when Mary comes into the house of Zacharias and she greets Elizabeth, that the baby leaps in her womb. And in verse 42, Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, I, get the, I get the impression that before anything is even said, she comes in and she greets her. She has not yet communicated to Elizabeth that, that, this, that she has been privy to this miraculous news from the angel Gabriel, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth knows. She says, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. And then I think it's interesting that she says in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed. Uh, maybe a little bit of a contrast there when we think about the angel's announcement to Zacharias, who had some measure of doubt because he asked for a sign that these things would be fulfilled. Maybe contrasting that a little bit with, with Mary. Uh, Mary who did believe. And Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believes. We, we now have this, uh, this next section here where, uh, where Mary praises the Lord. Um, sometimes you'll see this called the Magnificat. Uh, and it takes it takes that name there from verse 46 where it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, what I thought was interesting was just to compare this section to uh, to Hannah. If you recall, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter two uh, here is an individual desperately wanted a child, prayed for a child for a long period of time and then is granted is granted that request by the Lord. And Hannah has this beautiful prayer where she pours out her soul in thanksgiving and in praise to God. And I just think it's interesting to look at the words uh, of one mother so long ago, praising God for the gift of a child, and now look at Mary doing the same thing. My soul magnifies the Lord. Um, We don't have time to go verse by verse, but I did want to point out three things that kind of jumped out to me. And I'll encourage you here, as with any other place, if you see something that you want to comment on or that you want to ask a question on, please, please, please add to our class. Raise your hand. Cameron's got the microphone. We'll bring it to you. I would love to hear your feedback and your thoughts. But these are three things that jumped out to me in this section of praise. The first is in verse 48. And I love how Mary recognizes in humility her place. Her, her lowly place. Verse 48, For he, God, has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Just, just recognizing who she is and where she is in life. I, I, I think it, it is, probably goes without saying how important humility is in all aspects of our life. That we have all greatly been blessed by the Lord. And we don't, we don't deserve the blessings that we receive. We certainly haven't earned the blessings that we receive, Uh, but yet here Mary appropriately recognizes that she is not worthy of this tremendous blessing to be the mother of the Messiah. She has not done anything to to earn that. She has not done anything uh, that in her mind at least would set her apart. Now, I think we all understand that God had a purpose for choosing Mary and Joseph. God, in his providence, in his uh, omniscience, he chose them for a reason, but but Mary is recognizing here in humility what a wonderful blessing that has been bestowed upon her. Uh, also, I think it's interesting that she praises God for his strength. If you look at uh, verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Uh, reminds me a lot uh, of the prophets as they proclaimed against those that would lift themselves up. The exact opposite of humility. Those that would be haughty. Those that in their own pride would think that they are worthy of something. That they deserve something. They deserve praise and honor because of what they have done. And Mary correctly realizes here that those are the individuals that God is going to cast down. And he is going to exalt those who are, low, who are lowly. And also I like that she brings in here in verses 54 and 55, kind of backing it up and going big picture. So transitioning from her lowly, humble individual who has been exalted, who has been given this tremendous blessing. And, and I do think before I leave, that's, that's also worth noting. That she did not view this as a burden. Uh, and remember what we talked about last week. Imagine that somebody, this angel, has come to you and says, you are going to have a miraculous child. And by the way, no pressure, but this child is going to be the savior that the entirety of Old Testament Scripture has been talking about. You know, it would be be natural, I think, to have some selfish thoughts, to think, well, I'm going to be responsible for this. I'm going to be responsible for growing this child into the Savior of all mankind. But, But here, Mary does not express those thoughts. She expresses what a wonderful and tremendous honor and a blessing this is. And she recognizes, too, her role in the big picture. She remembers this promise that has been made thousands of years before to the fathers. Verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So just just remarkable there of Mary, that what, what could have been viewed from a selfish standpoint as a burden or too great of a responsibility or something that she would want to pass off to somebody else. In humility, she embraces this blessing and gives thanks to God for that. As we go on to the next couple of verses, and again, if you have something that you want to bring out, please put your hand up and we'd love to hear from you. But as we go on now, it mentions in verse 56 that Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months. If you recall, she came to her in the sixth month Uh, I'm not sure if she stayed for the birth of John the Baptist or if she stayed right up until that point in time that John was going to be born. But after about three months with Elizabeth, now Mary returns back home to Nazareth and John is born. Uh, The next couple of verses, verses 57 and following, talk about those first couple of days. Uh, after John was born. It mentions in verse 57 and 58 that, that he was born, that all of the neighbors, all of the, all of the relatives have heard about this wonderful blessing that has been bestowed upon Elizabeth and Zacharias. Again, uh, due to their age, it was notable that they had not had children. I think we've talked before about how, especially in, in these times, to not have a child, uh, it, it's, not, it's not good for, for anything. You know, if you were unable to have children, it's a terrible burden to bear. But especially at this point in time, when there probably wasn't the medical knowledge to understand why you couldn't have a child or what was going on that was preventing you or the, the advancements that we have now that allow people to have children. To live at this point in time without a child, you know, it, it can only be assumed by a lot of people well, you know, you're just you're doing something wrong. And so they had lived with this burden for a long time. And now their family, their relatives, their neighbors rejoice that this burden has been lifted, that they have been blessed with this child. Remember, at this point in time, Zacharias is still mute. He is still mute. And so as they go throughout, they they want to name this child after his father, Zacharias. Elizabeth stops them and says, no, uh, this child is to be named John. They say, well, that's not really, that's not, that's not one of your family names. And so they turn, they turn to Zacharias, who at this point is, is writing on a tablet, and he says the child is to be named John. And this follows the instructions that he was given by Gabriel, and his tongue is loosed, he's allowed He's allowed to speak again, he rejoices, and then he prophesies. Uh, when we come into these, uh, these next verses, he is filled with the Spirit, and he prophesies. Again, I think it's interesting, uh, and I just want to kind of point out some of these things, that he also focuses, he kind of goes big picture as well. He knows and he recognizes, and that's maybe what I'm getting at, these individuals, both Mary, Zacharias, they seemed to have a grasp of what was going on. That this was far bigger than just them and their family. They realized the, the weight of what, uh, of what the angel had told them, of what was happening. That through these children, that the entire landscape of human history was changing. And I think that's, that's remarkable. So often it's easy for us to kind of get myopic and just kind of think about the here and now, very, very short term, how does this impact me? From the very beginning, these individuals were able to step back and realize the part that they were playing in God's overall plan. And that is, that is admirable. And that is wonderful. And I think that's a lesson for us to kind of back, back up a little bit and maybe kind of take the, the, I guess, shift things off of us and think about what am I doing to contribute to God's overall plan? Not just how does this impact me or how does this impact my family. What am I doing to contribute to the church, to the community, to God's overall kingdom at large? But Zacharias also mentions, if you go down to verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So again, I think it's interesting there that he recognizes that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. There is no doubt in their minds who they are talking about. That they understand who who they're dealing with here. I also think that it's interesting that he recognizes in verse 76 the role that John is going to play in all of this. Um, verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So from the very beginning, there, there is no doubt in their minds as to the role that these two children will play. Okay, uh, Let's go ahead and shift back over to Matthew now. Matthew chapter 1. this is finishing up our reading from last week um, and after after this section we will be transitioning into uh, our, our studies for this week but just recall Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 if you're kind of placing things on the timeline here that uh, Mary has already Mary has already received from Gabriel this news that she is going to be with child from the, from the Holy Spirit as confirmation of that, Gabriel tells her that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant. She goes to stay with Elizabeth for these three months, and now she's coming back. So that's where we pick up in Matthew uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. So as she comes back, it's now apparent to uh, her betrothed husband Joseph that she is with child. And she is with child, not by him. So it mentions here that he is an upright man in verse 19. Some versions say a just man. He didn't want to make her a public example. He was minded to put her away secretly. Uh, put her away privately, so it seems that we have an early indication of the character of Joseph as well. So again, we don 't we don't know a whole lot about the personal lives of these individuals, but certainly we can see that God chose God chose this couple for a variety of reasons, not, not only their bloodline, but also they had elements, characteristics that would give that would give Jesus. Uh, the family and the foundation that he would need to grow up to be the savior that he was chosen to be. So uh, he, he mentions that he is going to put her away secretly. But at this point in time, uh, we have an angel coming to him in a dream. Uh, we're not told if this is Gabriel as well. Certainly could have been. I don't, don't think it matters one way or another. Um, but this angel tells him that Mary has not been unfaithful. She does not need to be put away. Um, that this is, this is a miraculous event. This child is of the Holy Spirit, and he is to take Mary as his wife. And he goes on and tells Joseph, she is going to bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And, and what, is, what does Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves, or Savior. Okay, So you will name this child Jesus, because he is going to save his people from their sins in verse 21. And then it mentions that all of this is done so that it can fulfill a prophecy. So when you go through it, it mentions that it's going to fulfill the prophecy, and it quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. So if we go to Isaiah chapter 7, and we look there in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So now, let's ask you this. We've got fulfillment of prophecy mentioned here, that the virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, they're going to call his name Emmanuel, but then we have recorded in Matthew chapter one that this angel comes to Joseph and says, "You should call him, you should call him Jesus." So, is there a contradiction there, or, or how do we explain Emmanuel and Jesus?
1: Just a little description of who Jesus actually
0: is and what his purpose is. When Emmanuel means God with us, yeah. showing his deity, I think also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that hits it right on the head. Um, that you have these you have these two words. You almost have a name and a title. It's almost how I think about it. You have a name and a title. Uh, as Nate correctly pointed out, Emmanuel means God with us. I think we're actually going to sing Emmanuel this morning. Um, but Emmanuel, as prophesied in, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse, in verse 14, this describes who Jesus was. Go back to last week, uh, our class, uh, and when we looked at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the word is with God. He is God, literally God with us. He is Emmanuel. That, that's, who, that's who he was. Jesus, his name, describes what he did. At this point in time, what he's going to do. He is going to be the savior. He is the embodiment of, of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, saving his people as promised. So, so no, no contradiction in my mind. You know We have people all the time that we have, we have names and we have titles. Uh, we we think about individuals. Sometimes people are known by their by their role at work. You know, somebody's the CEO, somebody's a manager, somebody's a director. That's that's their title. They also have a name. So no no contradiction. I think between between one and the other, just describing these different facets of of who he is and who and what he was going to do. All right. Any thoughts? That kind of wraps up. That wraps up last week. Any thoughts before we transition back to Luke chapter 2? Okay, well, let's go back. Let's go back, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. And, and now we'll be getting, if you're, if you're keeping up with our, our weekly reading, we're going to be starting the verses for this week. And do our best to try to, try to cover as many of those as we can so we don't get too far behind. Again, I love how when you, look at these, when you look at these texts together, when you look at Luke and Matthew, again, there's just there's wonderful collaboration here. We get a little bit of information in one that's not presented in another. We go back to Matthew, we get a little more information over here. Luke chapter 2 now gives us information and the background for why Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. Because where, where were they from? They're from Nazareth. So how do we get from Nazareth? Nazareth to Bethlehem is not close, by the way. So it's not like, hey, let's go take a weekend trip to, to Bethlehem. No, this is, this, is a, this is a pretty serious distance. So we come to Luke chapter 2. Now we have the background for why Joseph and Mary, again, a, a couple of, of lowly means. By, by all accounts, they're not wealthy. Uh, Mary is pregnant. They would probably not choose of their own volition to take a big trip, to leave their town, their house, whatever support system they would have, and go to Bethlehem. But in Luke chapter 2, we, we find out that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And Luke mentions here, and this is, this is very interesting, this is a little bit of insight into the writing of Luke. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. A lot of things there, but, but Luke, Luke does this a lot by giving very specific markers for us to go back and look at. And, and again, this is Luke writing to someone else So that they can assure them. Remember remember what we talked about in the very beginning of Luke? He is writing out a complete account to assure Theophilus of his faith. To build up his faith. And what's one way to build up faith? Facts, right? Facts and evidence. So now we have a marker. What's really interesting about this is that for a long time, this was actually a problem. Uh, If you go back and you think about this individual Quirinius, who was a governor of Syria... Roman records put this individual as governor of Syria in 7 AD. So this does not not match up with the birth of Christ. And this is a problem for a long time. Until archaeologists come along and discover that Quirinius was actually governor twice. So he was governor prior for for several years. And then he was elected governor again in 7 AD. And so that's why we have Luke probably mentioning this census first took place. So there are probably more than one census. We have more than one census. But it's just amazing to me how so many things that are are brought up as an error or, wow, this this doesn't really match up with history. As time goes on, history always catches up to the the Bible. The Bible is proven true time and time again, even in the smallest of details. And that's why individuals like Luke can have... No worries, or, no worries or anything about putting in these very specific markers for us to know what time we're at, who is in control. So, because as we've already established in our study last week, uh, Joseph and Mary are of the house of David. They're going to Bethlehem. They're going to the city of David for this registration. So it mentions in verse 4, they went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of that house and lineage of David. And this happens at the time that, uh, that Mary is giving birth. And so you can imagine this influx of individuals all coming in to Bethlehem at the same time, and there are not proper accommodations. And so we have an extremely humble beginning For the greatest person to ever walk the world. In verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger or feed trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. You can spend a lot of time debating about what this actually looked like, and and I don't I don't know that any of that is is particularly profitable. Um, I think all all that really matters for us is that we're talking about extremely humble beginnings. So whether they were out in a barn or whether they were just adjoining a house, they, they weren't in luxurious accommodations. Uh, the, the Prince of Peace, God with us, Emmanuel, was born in very, very simple accommodations, and was placed in a feed trough because that's what was available. Uh, again, just just think just think about that. Just think about that for a second. You know, again, go back to this idea: if you were a person. Say you are given unlimited resources and you're told, I need you, I need you to craft a president. We need someone who is going to be an influential ruler. We need you to craft a president from birth on up to the time that they run for office. Think about all the things that you would just assume you need to do. You know, you need to pick somebody that probably comes from a really, really good family, that probably has wealth, that probably has access, you need to make sure this person gets the right kind of education. You need to make sure this person goes to the right kind of schools. You know, maybe they need to go to a military academy. Uh, we, we would just put all of these things in order to say, okay, if I want somebody who is going to be influential, they need to hit all of these certain check marks. They need to have wealth. They need to have status. They need to have reach. All of these things. And, and, and God just turns that on its head. And he says the most influential person an individual that is going to absolutely change the landscape of human history is going to be born and placed in a manger. And he's going to be born to parents. Uh, Cam, Bruce has got a comment. He's going, to be, he's going to be born to parents of humble and lowly means. And maybe, and maybe there, there's wisdom in that, and that maybe now we can relate to that individual better. Because it's not somebody that came from a background that was so wildly different from us. Bruce?
1: Children of Israel tried that with Saul. How'd that
0: go? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, what happens? what happens when man tries to pick their leader? And we pick the best looking, the tallest, the strongest, but man can't see the heart. It's an excellent point. Man can't see the heart. So God, again, we see God working through an earthly ruler's decree. You go back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is the prophecy that talks about Christ being born in Bethlehem and so again, how do we get a poor family with a mother who's expecting to give birth from Nazareth to Bethlehem? God working through an earthly ruler. We, we mentioned this last week, but it does kind of astound you when you think about all the things that God did to preserve that lineage all the way through. All the things that God is doing to fulfill these prophecies. Um, when you come down to the next couple of verses, verses 8 through 20... Uh, of Luke chapter 2. Now we have these shepherds. So, so the child has been born. There are shepherds, and it mentions in verse 8 they're in the same country. Uh, tradition kind of places the shepherd's field about a half mile outside uh, of Bethlehem, but wherever they were, they were, they were fairly close. Um, and an angel, it says in verse 9, behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. This doesn't have a ton of bearing to, to our class today necessarily, but for just a second, can we dispel with the way that angels are so often characterized? You know, a, a lot of times when we, we see this cartoonish version of an angel, maybe like a little baby or it's a cherub or something, how often do you notice that when an angel appears to somebody, what's their first reaction? They tremble. They tremble and they're afraid when they are in the presence of an angel, when the glory of the Lord appears to them. You know, Zacharias, it mentions that he was troubled. Uh, Mary it mentions that she was troubled at first. These, these shepherds who are out in the field, when this angel appears to them, you know, their, their first reaction is to be greatly afraid in verse 9. And this angel comforts them and says, listen, uh, you don't need to be afraid. I'm bringing good news. Verse 10. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior that you've been waiting for, is finally here. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And then his confirmation... As confirmation of this incredible news that has just been shared with them, now, as if one angel wasn't enough, in verse 13 and 14, we have a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. If you were these shepherds, there is, there is no doubt in your mind what you're doing next. You don't, you don't go through an experience like that and say, whew, that was crazy, let's get back to these sheep. No, like this is, this is just rocked your world. You have had an angel come at first. You were terrified. Now you've received this wonderful news. And then as confirmation of that, a whole multitude of angels have glorified God right in front of you. So now they've got to go find this child. And that's exactly what they do. When the angels have gone away, the shepherds say, okay, we've got to go to Bethlehem. We've got to see this. And they mentioned in verse 16, they came with haste. Is there any other way to go? If this had just happened to you, your schedule is clear. Your calendar is open. This is now the number one thing that you have to do is to go find this child and you have to worship him. And that's exactly what they did. It mentions that they also, in verse 17, they made widely known the saying which was told to them. Uh, kind of stow that away. We're going to come back to that in a couple of, in a couple of minutes. Uh, let's go on to the next, the next couple of verses there, verses 21 through 38. Um, this tells us now on the eighth on the eighth day, uh, Jesus is circumcised, and again his name was called Jesus. So uh, we, we've already talked about that. Jesus means Yahweh saves or Savior, and this was the name that was given to him by the angel Gabriel. Uh, then he's presented at the temple. So verses twenty-two through verse twenty-four, they go to the temple uh, again here as confirmation that perhaps Mary and Joseph were not are not super wealthy or are not of a great means. They give the smaller sacrifice. If you go back to Leviticus, there are two options uh, for what you can do for the firstborn sacrifice. And it mentions there in verse 24 that they're giving the pair of turtle doves or the pair of pigeons, uh, not the lamb. And so maybe that signifies, maybe there's some significance there, maybe not. Um, but at least in my mind, it tells us that this is not, this is not a family that comes from, that comes from wealth. What is interesting is as you go through the rest of this, uh, we're introduced to two other characters. And again, I think this is building on a theme that starts with the shepherds. But we're next introduced to this individual Simeon in verse 25. Uh, In verse 25, this individual Simeon, and the way that it introduces him is that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. When you think of the word consolation, what, what comes to mind? Comfort. Comfort. It, you know, at least for me, maybe this is just, maybe this is just my background. Uh, I played in a lot of consolation games, which means that my teams weren't good enough to actually make it to the championship. <laughs> and, so, and so they said, hey, you, you missed out on the championship. Here's a consolation game because you drove all this way. So at least in my mind, when I think about consolation, and I, I think, hey, you didn't get what you wanted. But here's, here's something to make you feel a little bit better. And, and, and I think you guys have hit on it. Uh, that, that is not, maybe, maybe that's the way that we use it in some, in some cases. Um, but you have experienced something that is not ideal. You've had something taken away from you. And here's something to make you feel a little bit better. But, but the true meaning of consolation really is comfort. There's a much deeper meaning there. And it's not just, you know, hey, here's something as a substitute. Here's something that's not as good as first or second. Consolation truly is deep lasting comfort when, you have experienced, when you've experienced suffering. So think about that. Just think about that idea. In my Bible, I don't a person did this, but that word consolation of Israel it is capitalized. There's lots of names that could be that could be given that could be given to, to Christ. And I think this one is, of course, appropriate, you know, whether you capitalize it or not. He was the consolation. The nation, indeed all of mankind, had experienced suffering up to this point. There was no one that had come to truly take away sins. And now, this individual Simeon, who, like everyone else, is waiting for the consolation, he is waiting for the comforter. And there is only one person who is uniquely qualified to provide absolute comfort. And who is the one that says, Come to me? Let me, let me comfort you. Let me take that burden on you, that burden of sin. It's Jesus. It's the Savior. There's only one that can provide that true comfort, that true consolation. And I just think that's interesting, the way that it uses that phrase there. There was one who was waiting, a just and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And what a tremendous blessing to Simeon that by the Spirit he had been told, you are not going to die until you see it. How incredible is that? Can you imagine having that given to you? You are not going to die until you see the one that you and countless others have been waiting for. And so in verse 27, he comes by the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into the temple. And when the parents bring the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, now if you're, if you're Mary and Joseph, picture this as a parent. You're, you're coming with your child. An old guy walks up and just takes your child. As a parent, that would be a little bit, that would be a little bit unnerving to me. But this individual who has been waiting for this child is led by the Spirit. He takes him up in his arms in verse 28 and he blesses him. And he says, and we'll read this real quick, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon says, now I can depart in peace. What I've been waiting for my entire life now is right in front of me. Says verse 30, My eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon, what a wonderful blessing. Simeon got to see that. And he blesses that child in front of everybody. Can you imagine? Verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would marvel too. You know, they, they, are, they are aware on some level of, of what's going on But I think, just, just kind of put yourself in their shoes of all these things that are happening. You've had these shepherds that come to you and that are worshiping your child. That were notified of this by an angel. Now you go to have him circumcised on the eighth day. Simeon comes and says, this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. Just a couple of verses later, we have another individual. Verse 36, Anna, this prophetess, who is a widow of great age... In that instant, verse 38, it says, She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who look for the redemption in Jerusalem. Individuals unconnected by anything except the providence of God are now coming out of the woodwork to worship your child. But let's go back because this is this is just going to continue. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. And, and this is this is the beauty here of, of the collaboration, because Luke doesn't even talk about what's happening next. But Matthew picks right up. And again, think about this. The shepherds, Simeon, Anna. Now, Matthew chapter 2, we've got these wise men. It appears that a little bit of time has passed. So they've already gone to the temples. They've gone to Jerusalem. They've come back to Bethlehem. So a little bit of time has passed. But now we have these wise men that are coming from the east. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So not Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So they go to Herod. And now think about this. At first, you're thinking, well, if they're following the star, why did they come to Jerusalem and not Bethlehem? But, but just but stick, stick with me for a minute, because I think we're, we're building on this narrative. So they go to Herod. Herod, uh, we talked about this. You know, Herod. Herod is the is the king. He's the ruler of this province. He's the Jewish ruler uh, of this province. Not not a very nice person. So immediately, when somebody comes to him, and, and again, this is this is my interpretation. Individuals that have traveled from a far distance. A, at least when I read this, I get that there's more of them. You know, we we the three little wise men that come along. I feel like there are more of them. Again, I don't have I don't have any. You know, it, it, there's, no, there's no evidence of that. Could have been three, could have been, could have been two, I guess, if there's just a multiple of them. But if you've got individuals that have traveled with a bunch of treasure for a very long distance, I, I just imagine in my mind that there are more of them. But anyway, you've got this cohort of individuals that have traveled a long distance. They come to Herod in Jerusalem and they say, hey, we're here to see the king that has just been born. That gets Herod's attention mighty quick. Okay. Herod senses this threat to his throne, so he's immediately interested. And he says, all right, tell, tell me more about this. Tell me more about this king that you are coming to see. It mentions in verse 3 that he was troubled, and note this, all Jerusalem with him. So now we're not talking about Bethlehem, little Bethlehem. We're talking about Jerusalem. It mentions that Herod and all of Jerusalem is troubled by this arrival of individuals unsolicited from the east, to come and to worship this king that has just been born. Interestingly enough, Herod goes to the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, uh, where, where is this king going to be at? They say, oh yeah, we know that, Bethlehem. It's in Micah. They, they, they have no problem answering where the king is going to be born. So Herod sends the wise men there, and he says, hey, listen, when you find him, let me know, because I want to come worship him too. Exactly. We, we can sense here already that Herod does not have honorable intentions. The wise men then go to Bethlehem, it mentions there that uh, when they departed, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. Again, supernatural, miraculous. You can read a bunch of stuff about, you know, at that point in time, Jupiter was actually lining up with something else. No, this this is, this is supernatural, miraculous. This is God leading these individuals to the Messiah so that they could worship Him. And it mentions verse 11 when they had come into the house, Uh, They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And being divinely warned, they did not go back to Herod. They went back a different way. I just want you to think about this this for a second. Uh, I I was just reminded of, of this phrase in Acts chapter 26 and verse 26. Flash forward a bunch of years. Where Paul is talking to a descendant of Herod, Agrippa, And he says, I'm convinced, Agrippa, that you know these things because these things were not done in a corner. Just just think about all that has gone on over the past couple of days here. When you have the shepherds coming into Bethlehem, when you have them going to the temple and Simeon and Anna, and now you have this cohort of wise men coming in to Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, the rulers. It mentions that all of Jerusalem is troubled. This stuff was not done in a corner. Everybody knew exactly what was going on right now. So it should not have been a surprise to anybody that the Messiah was there. This was a big deal. The events of Luke and Matthew clearly show that God was not hiding the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah was prophesied about over and over and over and over again. That's what we, when we go to Matthew, we we talk about how Matthew uh, and Brother Bruce has got a comment we talk about how Matthew is, is probably writing to this Jewish audience, and he's going back trying to reinforce what the Old Testament scriptures have said, going back and pulling out these prophecies and these quotes. So, not only are there all these prophecies pointing to it, but then God is putting up giant exclamation marks to all of those that are around Judea at this time as to what's going on.
1: And to go back to Mary, and I kind of use her as the example of how uh, our faith becomes full she'd been told that he was going to be the savior of the world but now and and, you know we say jesus is our king jesus is our savior and we imagine what his physical appearance may be and we imagine these other things because we haven't seen him face to face but now mary's out in public and she's seeing that there is something special about her child that the poor are coming to him Mm-hmm. And the rich, uh, the wise men are coming to him, not him going to them, but mm-hmm. them coming to him and worshiping him. And I think it's like our faith. You know, we walk around with this idea that, yes, we know Jesus and we believe he's, he's real, but we cannot imagine until we see face to face fully and, and realize how great he is and how no. great his glory is. And so I, I just want to say, Mary, you know, as, as we keep looking at Mary through the gospel, she's going to eventually at the wedding feast uh, urge Jesus to, you know, go ahead and show them who you are. Uh-huh. You know, well, my time's not here yet. Christ's time is not here yet for us until he comes again. And then we'll see him face to face in his glory. But it's only through our getting out in the public and our showing uh, and thus showing yeah. Uh, our faith to the world—that uh, we see the power of the Word and we feel uh, the power of Jesus as the consoler to sinners.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, what what an, what an incredible what an incredible confirmation of faith to see this. And I think there there was there was a wonderful blessing that was given to the parents to Joseph and Mary here. Again, they they believed, but now they've seen it confirmed over and over by these different individuals. Yes, Liam
2: a little bit of history here when Jesus was born um, it was not Christmas time it was not winter time it was more likely in spring that's why shepherds would be out in their field that's very important to to study because a lot of people believe that he was born in December and he probably was not and another thing is uh, the gold incense and myrrh that was brought to him was uh, given to him proofs that he was a king. The gold represents wealth, the myrrh represent is, is done when a king is buried, and the incense is also done when a king is buried. And the reason this, uh, uh, and the wise men might have came, uh, he may have been about one at the time. And the reason that's important to know is because for so long, uh, uh, traditions says different, but you need to know the history behind there so you don't get um, the world, worldly view confused with the historical. Yeah,
0: I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah, they, they are definitely coming. And I think the, the main thing that we need to take away is that they are coming to worship him. They are coming to worship him. These individuals have traveled a long distance. They've been prompted. Uh, they've been prompted by, by the star. And, and, and really, even that, you go back to Balaam's fourth prophecy. We don't really have time to talk about that as our, as our time is up today. But uh, Balaam prophesied about the star and a scepter that would arise out of Israel. And these individuals followed that star to come and to worship this king. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, and put a put a little pin right there. We will finish up next week, um, so we will pick up in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 2, and in verse 13, um, we will pick up with that. But I appreciate your thoughts, and I appreciate your comments.